All right, everyone. If there's anyone you haven't greeted yet, feel free to do that, and then you can begin making your way back to your seats, and we'll get into our study of God's Word this morning. I've always loved that about this church. We actually have to tell people, stop greeting so many people. Come on, get back to your seats. we got to get this thing going. So I, I honestly, I love that. I appreciate that. And I think that's what the church should be. It should be the family and household of God. It should be people that you delight in their company. We enjoy one another's presence, and we get to catch up with each other and see what is going on. And again, we hope that doesn't stop on a Sunday. We hope that continues throughout the week and throughout the seasons as well. Well, this morning we are going to continue our study of the incredible book of Acts, which records the birth of the Christian church. And as in many of our Bibles, it is titled the Acts of the Apostles, which is most certainly true, may also be rightly seen as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or even the Acts of the resurrected and ascended Christ. For Christ's ministry did not end at his ascension, but rather it transitioned. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sent the Spirit. And the rest of the New Testament actually teaches that Christ is the head of the church. And the analogy is that of biology. It is the brain that is telling the body what to do. So a church that is not connected to Christ, that does not receive its directions, from him is not being a genuine or authentic church. And that is why we're calling this study, a study in the book of Acts, Authentic Church. If we want to know what a church really is, what we don't do is just look out there and say, hey, what are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? If I did that, I mean, we could do, we could end up being a circus for, for all I know. So what we need to do is go back to the Bible and say, what is a church? What does it look like? Who's supposed to be there? What are they supposed to be doing? Why are they supposed to be doing it? And it's from the scriptures that we'll see that some things that churches do are, are right and they're good and they've been doing them and they're traditional and we should keep on doing them and hold fast to those. And then we're always going to see in any day and age, because people are fallible, as we've discussed previously, there's going to be things where we're going to say, hey, wait a minute. They've been doing it that way, or they're doing this thing, but that's that's not in here. That's not good. We need to we need to get back to this. And so it's always important that the people of God are constantly being reformed by the Word of God. And so this morning we'll be looking at Acts chapter one, and we're going to be looking at verses fifteen through twenty-six. Acts chapter one, verses fifteen through. 26. If you want to turn there in your Bibles and follow along with me now as I read the Word of God. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, 
that is, feel the blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabas, who was surnamed Eustace and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is God's word. Let's pray over the message this morning. Gracious Lord, we come before you, and we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit, who is able to take these words, this ink on paper, and turn it into living words, able to print this word upon human hearts. Lord, we believe by your word, the world came into existence out of nothing. By your word, those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins have been brought to life through the glorious word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, in this morning, I just pray, if there is anyone among us who has no faith, They've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Perhaps they believe they cannot. They simply believe, I am obviously somebody who can never believe. I just don't. I find no life in these words. I don't believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I don't understand why church is important or necessary. I just don't get it, and I don't think I ever will. Lord, if there are any among us this morning... Let them know that you love them. Let them know that they are not alone. For many of us, myself included, have once thought and said those very things. And yet those of us who believe are witnesses of the resurrection and power of Christ to speak faith into unbelieving hearts cause non-believers to become believers. God-deniers to become God-fearers. Christless people becoming disciples. Touch their hearts this morning through the Word. Lord, for those who have placed faith in Christ, increase their faith May they find this morning that Christ was among us. Walking amidst the aisles as surely as he did in the book of Revelation. Walking amidst the lampstands of the seven churches. He's present with us this morning. Give us eyes to see Christ. Give us the Holy Spirit to reach for him that he may be found. Lord, help us to look to you 
more than we look to any man, any person, or anything. For he is Lord, and he is King, and he is coming again quickly, soon, and he is bringing his reward with him. The question will be, who will be found faithful when he comes? By your grace today, Lord, may we be found faithful. Bless this time of teachings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, life is full of seasons, isn't it? Seasons come and seasons go. Some seasons are just different. They don't seem significantly different. They just seem a little bit different. seems like life's basically going on. It's a straight line Maybe some different things going on. Other seasons in life are radically different, aren't they? Some seasons in life, they, they, they're jarring. Because you thought life was just merely, it's just chronology, it's just minutes ticking away on my phone, and you know, adding a year to my birthday, and, and it seems like that's all it is. Then all, something happens, and it, and it just jars you. Seasons come, and seasons go. Many times we're not in control of when they come and when they go, are we? Granted, sometimes it seems like we're involved in bringing a season into existence, and other times it seems like we can help bring it to an end. I've been through all kinds of seasons. I'm sure many of you have too. I felt like I'm helpless, and just the weather is what it is. The sun's going to be out, or it's going to be windy, or it's going to be cold. I, I have no control whatsoever. I've been in those seasons. Does anyone else know what that kind of season is like? You're just watching it happen. You're not in control. Other seasons, no. It's like you, you felt like you could see a connection directly between your choices and your actions and what was going on in your life. Have you ever had those kinds of seasons? Where each choice seemed to be very monumental, very significant. But the one thing all those different seasons have in common is that they come and they go. So the question is, what do we do in those seasons? What kind of people should we be when we are in those seasons? The text in front of us this morning addresses this very question. Because the disciples are in between a season, a monumental season of which they're, in not, they're not in control. So they've just spent three years of their earthly life with Jesus. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I, and I know the scripture, Jesus says, it's better for you if I go, John 14, it's better. Because if I go, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And, and I believe that he's right. I, I, I think that's a good thing in life. Just start believing Jesus is right, even if you can't fully figure it out. But I still kind of want to push back, don't you, on those words, like, it's not better that you go, Jesus. Like, I know you're saying that, and I know you're going to get the Holy Spirit, but I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. I'd kind of like you to stay. That, that had to be just such an amazing season. And it's one of those amazing seasons because they don't have to be the leader. It's a whole other thing when you become the leader, right? You become the leader in your profession. You become a leader in your home. You become uh, maybe a parent to children or, or whatever the case might be. It's a whole other thing when you become the leader. And that's kind of a transition that's taking place. They've only been followers. They haven't really been leaders 
of anybody. And now the season is changing. They're still followers of Jesus. That's where the continuity is. Whenever seasons change, remember this should never change. You are called to be a follower and disciple of Jesus. That has not changed. A great man of the faith, most of you probably wouldn't know him, but he was a Bible teacher at Calvary Chapel High School where I taught Bible for three years. And he passed away of cancer a week ago. And they did his memorial yesterday. And it was, it was a beautiful memorial because it was largely one of joy. That man was somebody, he, he, he was always smiling. He had so much joy. And he always wanted to tell people about Jesus. And he went through many seasons of life, including the last one where he dealt with terminal cancer. And going through that season, it, it just, it, watching those videos, it just reminded me of the brevity of life. And it reminds me of how we make different decisions depending on how much time we think we have. If we think we have all the time in the world, we're probably not going to take all our time seriously. But when you start realizing, I don't have a lot of tomorrows. I don't have a lot of Sundays. I don't have a lot of Christmases or birthdays. I think they start becoming more important. And so on the one hand, while it's, it's sad, in a sense, that you know there'll be fewer of those, on the other hand, there's a sweetness to being focused. Focused on the finish line. Focused on what matters most. There's almost a burden that's relieved when you realize, I've spent so much of my life fretting, worrying, and scurrying about many times of things that in the final analysis, when I'm at a memorial, or one day when my family, when my family of God, my spiritual, is at my memorial, <coughs> I'll be like, why did I do that? Or at least, maybe if I needed to do it, why was I so worried about it? Why did I prioritize this rather than that? And so I think when seasons draw to a close and we see transitions in life, and we go from being followers to being leaders in life, it's so important that we have a compass and that we have a guide to what kinds of things we are supposed to do. And so Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's told the disciples to wait. He says, you're going to need power. You need knowledge. You need truth. You need to be taught the Bible. But you need spiritual power. You need the Holy Spirit. You don't need just truth plus talent. You need truth plus the Holy Spirit. And as, as important as talent is in Christian ministry, I'd say the Holy Spirit is even more important. We want to align people's gifts with their functions, yes, to the best of our ability. But at the end of the day... Talent doesn't save souls. The Spirit of God does. Amen. Amen? The Spirit of God does. And that's important to remember because sometimes in life, we don't give what we have to the church because we look at it and we rightly discern it's not enough. What is five loaves and two fish among so many? What, 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 what I have in my hand, what's that going to do? But the goal is Jesus loves you. He knows what we all have, myself included. It's not enough to bring dead men to life. 
But he says, bring what you have to me. Because I want you yoked to your father's work. I want you to participate with me. And if you do that, if you're willing to participate with me, if you're willing to give what you have to me, guess what? I will bless it. I will multiply it. And it will be more than enough to feed the multitudes. And so the disciples are learning truly what it means to bring what they have to the table and to give it to God. Not only are they waiting in this in-between time between the ascension of Christ and the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost, and this period was roughly 50 days, so about two months of waiting time, but it was probably also a time of a little bit of, of grieving and a little bit of shock. Now, I'm not talking about Jesus' death because, of course, he's resurrected. They've experienced joy. Now, he's departed, and yes, there's a sense of loss, but there's also a sense of expectancy on the Holy Spirit. But there's another way in which I, I think we often pass over this in, in Scripture, in the book of Acts, but I think this had to have been jarring. And that is that one of the disciples that Jesus chose as an apostle the inner circle, one of the twelve, was a traitor. He betrayed Jesus. And think about that for a moment. Again, if this is real life, real history, real people, then they were with Judas was in their group three years, serving effectively in the church. They're with him. They're, they're praying and they're teaching the word and sharing people and following Jesus and talking about, what in the heck was he talking about with that parable? I don't know. Do you know? No, I don't know. Let's go ask him. And they're with him for three years. And then he utterly abandoned. It's not just like he sinned. Everybody sins. It's not just like he blew it. Peter blew it. He apostatized. He left the faith. And then not only that, this text records how he died. Now, Matthew tells us a little bit of a different account. I don't think these are contradictory, but they are different. Matthew records specifically that Judas hung himself. So that tells us how Judas died. Acts, I don't think, records how he died, but what happened to his body afterwards. You'll notice, and I know, this is, you definitely don't want your church breakfast burrito in your hand as we read verse 18, but... It says, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he bursts open in the middle and all his ent entrails gushed out. It's like, good grief. You know, that, that's, that's a lot of detail. Now, think about this. This man, who was one of their inner circle, not only apostatized, but he met a violent end. And that had to have been something where, man, they're just reeling from this. It takes a while to process that. How could this have happened? And what we're seeing here is they're not only processing, what do we do in this in-between time? What do we do when Jesus is now gone, we're waiting the Holy Spirit, but he's not here, and we're processing the fact that somebody we respected in the faith, he's a ministry colleague, and he's done the most horrible, vile, awful things we can think of, and met a violent end. What do we do? And we are being shown what they did. And so let's work our way through this and see what we can glean for ourselves for these in-between times. So, verse 15, 
And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So again, notice already what God by his grace is doing. Peter the apostle, who denied Jesus three times, who was restored by Jesus three times, invited graciously, not because Peter deserved it, but because Jesus loved him. And Peter already is taking that yoke upon him. His Lord and Master, his parting words were, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my flock. And I believe that's what Peter is doing. Lord, I don't know what the future holds, but I remember your word. You told me to feed your sheep. And so Peter stands up and he says, that's what I'm going to do. And he begins feeding the word of God. People debate, is, is this a proper sermon or do we just call it a speech? Well, I don't know that there's a fine line necessarily, but I would actually say, even though many people look at this as more of a speech than a sermon, I think there's elements of a sermon here. And I kind of want to show you what that looks like. He says in verse 16, men and brethren, so he's addressing his audience, men and brethren. This scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, this is a recurring theme. It had to be fulfilled in Greek, day. It is necessary. It is necessary. Now, already what we're getting is Christian doctrine. What is Christian doctrine? Christian doctrine is not simply that which is true. It is that which is fundamentally true. We wouldn't see necessarily that every single thing there possibly is, is a doctrine per se. There's many things that are not fundamental, they're not essential, they're, they're not mentioned multiple times, texts don't presuppose it. So we wouldn't say that everything that is true is necessarily fundamental. But we would say, I would say, the doctrine of Scripture is fundamental. It's important that we understand not only that Scripture is important, there's still many people that will acknowledge that, but we need to understand why it is important. How is it important? And I think he unpacks that. First of all, he says that it was necessary that this be fulfilled. He says, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. There's a number of important moves being made here. First of all, notice that when we say that Scripture is inspired, the biblical doctrine of inspiration includes both divine and human authorship. It includes both divine and human authorship. Now, for some reason, people tend to lean to one side or the other. There are some people that say, we acknowledge the human side. Oh, David wrote that, Paul wrote that, John wrote that, but it's just a human book, right? That, that's, that is a very popular conception today. The Bible is just a human book. Now, on the other side, some people will actually deny it's a human book, and they'll say, no, no, God just wrote it, the whole thing was written, and it was let down out of heaven on a string. Humans weren't involved in it at all. And, I, and to some degree, each of these extremes is a reaction to the other. 
people who hold this view of whether it's, it's just dictation theory, there's no people involved with it, or, or even if they were, their, their personalities or their styles or their language or their grammar or their context was not involved at all. And that's partly a reaction to the modernist view of scripture that says, this is just a human book. It's just a book of religious reflections about life, of, of which there are many such books in the world. But I want to point out to you that we should get our doctrine of Scripture guessed from where? Scripture. Scripture. That's a great place to start. What does the Bible say about itself? Very important. And we should check our opinions. No matter how much we think we're doing God a favor by asserting our opinions of it, even those opinions, well-intentioned, must be brought back to Scripture. And what you'll notice that Peter asserts is that the Holy Spirit, so divine authorship, yes, we're affirming divine authorship. Nobody should look at the Bible and say this is just a bunch of religious reflections of an ancient people whose meaning is largely lost to the past. Nobody should read the Word of God that way. This is breathed out, and I would say that is the ultimate origin of the Bible. It does originate in the mind or heart of God, as it were. It begins with Him. It comes from Him, proceeds from Him. He is the one that carries it along so that it has power and effect in the lives of those who hear it. And He is the one who brings the Word to its desired end. It is God, the author and finisher of the faith, who is the author, original, divine of the Holy Scriptures. But notice the manner in which God has chosen to speak. God, who could have done it differently. Could God, if he can speak a world into existence, could he have spoken ink onto paper? I think he certainly could have. Could he have done it all at once, rather than spamming thousands of years and all kinds of people for, in different lengths? Could he have done it differently? 100%. I would say without, without question, so it is actually quite interesting that God, in his infinite wisdom, chose to speak through people. At particular times, particular places, in particular languages. And here Peter acknowledges that the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring scripture, spoke through the very mouth of King David. King David is not acknowledged in the Bible as being the author of all of Scripture, but part of Scripture, namely some of the Psalms. And so if we're going to understand what the Bible says about itself, we must read the Bible as both being first and foremost the very breath and word of God, but proceeding through the mouth and language of men. That is why when we study the Bible, we study it in various ways. Sometimes we might emphasize one more than the other, and I think that's okay as long as we hold on to the tension between the two. In churches, I think normally we, we want to lean on the divine side of it. Because it is ultimately for God that we're gathered. Hopefully, church is not a social club. It is the household of God, and so we lean on that. And yet, if we're going to truly acknowledge what God has done, it is why you'll hear pastors and preachers rightly talk about who wrote it, 
What were the times and circumstances in which they wrote it? What words? Sometimes even the particular word, the original word in the Hebrew or the Greek. Why? Why did God in his wisdom choose that word? That is not to emphasize man so much as it is to acknowledge God's choice of working through the language of men. And so a high view of scripture is in no way an enemy of historical grammatical study of the Bible. But we must hold both together in tension. Now notice what Peter is doing. So he's presupposing this view of the doctrine of scripture. And notice what he says. Which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now this is interesting. Because if you look up the passages that are going to be quoted in just a few verses, the name of Judas does not appear in those verses. So he quotes from two different Psalms. He quotes from Psalm 69, verse 25, and he quotes from Psalm 109, verse 8. If anyone was interested, he particularly quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew. Interesting. But if you go there, Judas is not mentioned. So what do you find? And let me put it this way. Whenever the New Testament quotes the Old, one thing you should do is pay attention to what are they doing. Because sometimes people think, oh, well, there, it, it would just be easily seen that the name of Judas is there. But a lot of times what's happening is we are seeing a certain mode of interpretation, what we would call a Christological or Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament. And many times the interpretation will proceed by what we call typology. That is that people and places and events, though really historical, yet pointed to something that was supra-historical. In other words, it was beyond itself pointing to something that was a greater reality. And if you look up both of these psalms and you were to read the whole thing, not just the verse quoted, but the whole thing, here's what you see in both instances. Both psalms are psalms of David. They're attributed to David. Real person, real time, real place. David is writing about how he is a righteous man, not meaning sinless, but in right relationship with God. He fears God. He loves God. He assembles with the people of God. He meditates on the word of God day and night, and he offers sacrifices to God. He is in a right relationship covenantally with God. And yet David, as a righteous man, finds he's suffering. Because many times the righteous suffer. And the wicked are coming against the righteous. And David begins each of these psalms by lamenting his circumstances as a, as a righteous person. Because when you're, when you're honestly walking with God and you're doing what you should do, it actually makes it harder to go through hard times in a certain degree. Because it feels even that much more incongruent. Because it would make sense. If, look, if I'm living in blatant open sin, it makes sense, okay? I may not like my pain and my suffering and my consequences, but it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. But what I have a really hard time dealing with is when I'm literally, when, when you are, when I am, giving my heart to God. I'm reading His Word day and night. I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm sacrificing. And suffering seems to follow me anyway. And that is a hard thing to do. But we see that we are no stranger if that is our circumstance. 
that better men and women than us, more faithful people of God have experienced the same thing. And after David laments in both of these psalms, he then prays that God would judge the wicked. Now that's how both of those psalms end. Peter, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says that these actually were speaking of Christ and Judas. And you go, wait a minute. This is David. That's the context. It's David. He's suffering. These are real people, groups that are attacking him, or people in Israel that are coming against him, or his own son, by the way, at one point. That had to be horrible. His son just shamed him and humiliated him. and just un Unbelievable. So it could have been his son. Who knows? And David is, is praying and lamenting, and here's these wicked people. These are real people. And somehow, some way, Peter, through the Spirit, says this was about Jesus and Judas. And you might ask, how so? How did he arrive at that? And here's how he arrived at that. Whatever the Old Testament points to, whatever good of God is given in the Old Testament, it points to Christ. And Christ is always the true and better version of that. So in other words, when you see a king in the Old Testament, you, when you are reading them, you are to know that there is a true and better king who is Christ. When you see a priest in the Old Testament, you are to remember that there is a true and better priest that is Christ. Whenever you see a prophet, there is a true and better prophet that is Christ. When you see Adam, the first Adam, you see that there is a true and better Adam, and that Adam is Christ. When you see, and this is one of the great things of the Old Testament, a suffering servant, the true and better suffering servant is Christ. And that is how Peter is able to read Psalm 69 and 109 and say they're about Jesus and Judas because what Peter must be doing is seeing this picture of David imperfect though he is but a genuine follower of God he's, he's righteous and he's suffering and he's being afflicted and he's praying that his enemy's house would become desolate and that another would take his office that's what David is praying and Peter is saying, you know what? When that was even expressed through the Spirit, it was even then in the Old Testament pointing ultimately to Christ. It was about Christ. And that means when you and I read the Old Testament, we are not to read it solely as being locked into the distant past, but to be pointing today forward to Jesus Christ, that it speaks of him. As Jesus said, behold, in the volume of the book, it speaks of me. All the scriptures testify of Jesus. And that is what Peter is doing here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he is taking scripture. He is interpreting it through Christ, who is the proper principle of interpretation of the Bible. And he's now applying it to a present challenge and dilemma that they face. He goes on to explain, Concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, 
He burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, that in your Bible, as it is in mine, there might be parentheses around it, and if there is, that is because the translators believe this is not a part of Peter's speech or sermon, but rather this is Luke explaining to his readers what is going on. And if so, in either case, it's interesting because what he is doing is often what I do or what pastors do when they teach the Bible. They will provide a historical, grammatical context. Notice he says, oh, and by the way, this is what people thought happened. This is this news went out. Oh, and by the way, Akeldama, well, that, well, that's Aramaic. And, you know, Peter's original audience probably would have known Aramaic. But just in case you don't know the language, here's this key word and here's what it means. You see some historical, grammatical study taking place in this speech or sermon that Peter is giving. In verse 20, he's going to quote the two psalms that I mentioned. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. So Peter, seeing that the Spirit originally inspired David to speak not just about himself, but also about Christ and about Judas who betrayed him. He says, therefore of these men who have accompanied us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now this tells us a lot about Christian ministry. We know first and foremost from this that Christian ministry and life is all about Jesus. Notice what they didn't say. We need people who are super gifted, super talented, they have the best singing voices, they have the best gifts of rhetoric and oratory. What we need is witnesses of Jesus Christ. That is first and foremost what we need. And that is the occupation of every believer. We are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. We need to be witnesses not just of Jesus' moral teachings, because by the way, uh, you've probably seen the studies. While Christianity and the church is waning in popularity, people on those same surveys will still say Jesus is pretty high up on my list. And you think, well, how can they do that? They, well, he's a great moral teacher. He's got good things to say. But I want you to notice that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis actually was not on the moral teachings of Jesus. We need somebody who has a lot of the moral teachings of Jesus memorized. Now, no doubt they have that. But notice that's not the, the emphasis. What is it we need? We need someone who is a witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We need somebody who can testify to the living power of God that Christ has defeated the power of both sin and death upon the cross. That is who we need to bear witness. And that is the central criteria of Christian ministry. We must bear witness to Jesus. We do not point to ourselves. We do not point to our own gifts and talents. We point to God who raises the dead. Verse 23, and it says, And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias, 
and they prayed. I want you to notice as we go through the book of Acts how often you see prayer. Just the last time that we went through this message, last week, it talked about they were praying. That is actually how verse 14 ended last week. These all continued with one accord in prayer. The church of God is a praying church. It's something we do. It is a part of our life. You know, a man back in the 1800s approached the great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, and they said to him, Sir, which is more important, reading the Bible or praying? To which Spurgeon wryly replied, Why don't you tell me what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? For many people, they think, well, I'm just going to take in the Word of God. I'll read the Word of God. I know that's important. That's like holding your breath. You're inhaling, and you're holding on, but you're not exhaling. Prayer is the breath of the Christian life. We're dead without it. Prayer is not just some side thing, but it's become a side thing. Most people don't pray. If they pray, it's more of a ritual. I just always do it at this time and that time. And again, having a discipline is not wrong. I don't want anyone to think that. It can protect us from losing that which is good. So traditional ritual, not, not necessarily bad per se. But we want it to be our life. We want it to be saturated in prayer. We pray about everything. And again, for some people, they mock prayer. Because they think prayer is not doing anything. And again, prayer is not the enemy of action. It is preparation for action. That's actually how you see prayer function. It is how prayer is functioning this morning. They're going to do something. They're going to restructure their leadership. They're, they're creating a job description. They're going, to in, have a, uh, they're going to invite people to put forward a couple of candidates, and they're going to make a decision. But they bathe all of those practical decisions in prayer. They don't simply say, oh, well, this is what we need, and this is what we got to do, and this is what people want, so we'll just do it. They pray. And so notice they are praying again. They are doing their best. They are trusting God. They're being faithful to God's word. But that does not excuse prayer. They bathe themselves in prayer. And they prayed, verse 24, and said, You, O Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. Now some people debate, was he... When he says, oh Lord, is he praying to God the Father or is he praying to Jesus? And again, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity in one sense, well, they're one. So it's not a pertinent, it's not necessarily an essential question. But I, I personally lean towards Jesus in this matter. And again, there's many that disagree. They think he's praying to God the Father. And the reason is, first of all, Jesus is the one who chose the apostles in the first place. Jesus called them, Jesus chose them. The second reason is some people say, well, it's God the Father that knows the hearts of people, and therefore it's God the Father. Actually, earlier in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus knew the hearts of people. It says he did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts, he knew what was in man. In other words, even though people said, oh, Jesus will follow you, Jesus knew better. Jesus sees through false professions of faith. 
He sees through the, the, the knee-jerk emotional reactions. Got him in a jam. You know, I got arrested or I fell off the wagon or I did I need you. And, and Jesus knows, is this really about me or is this about you? You just want me to be Lord for the weekend to get you out of your jam or do you want me to be Lord of your life? He sees through. He knows the difference. So in either case, like I said, whether it's the Father or the Son in particular, it's the one God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But he says, he prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Now there's humility in that. We're always going to do the best, at least we ought to, to make the best decisions we can. But there should be a humility in our decisions. We admit that our knowledge is fallible. Lord, we're going to do the best we can the best we can with the information we have, but we acknowledge, can we be wrong? Can sincere, God-fearing Christians trying to honor God do their best? Can they be wrong? Absolutely. And so notice the humility there. Some people think, well, that's not, you're not, that's not faith. Faith just, you know, you grab hold of something, this is the way it's going to be. And again, it's faith in God, not in ourselves. It's faith in what God wants to do, not just what I want God to do for me. There is a difference. So you, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen. So ultimately, they want their choice to be God's choice. Show which of us of these two you have chosen, verse 25, to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Again, the idea of filling that symbolic number of 12, it was important for them because it was representative of Israel. And they wanted to maintain this picture that even though to the surface it looked like one fell away, one lost their salvation, that ultimately God knew from the beginning those who were his and that God will always save all of those who were truly his. He will never, ever lose one of his sheep. He will never allow them to perish. None can pluck them out of his hand. And so they're filling this spot symbolically to say that the 12 are there. The fullness of the household, the elect, the people of God are there. And even though sometimes in life, it will look like some have fallen away or apostatized or abandoned their faith. But we're being reassured here that even when we encounter those seasons, in Christian life, which is inevitable, friends. It is inevitable. And people's theology will be shaken by their experience. If I went by experience, I would probably believe in the, the I would not believe the doctrine of eternal security. I wouldn't. By what I've seen through the course of my life, again, pastor's kid, growing up in the church, being a pastor, if I went by what I saw, I'd say, yeah, looks like you can lose your salvation. But my theology should not be shaped primarily by my experience, but by the Word of God. And according to the Word of God, you cannot lose your salvation. If you're born again, you belong to God. You, you, you don't get born again, again, again. You don't, you don't become unborn again after you're born again. It doesn't happen. God knows from all eternity those who are his. But in time and space, our knowledge and our understanding of who's really in, who's with us, who's among us, who's not because they went out, that can become a shocking experience in people's lives. And that is why we need to be grounded first and foremost in God's word. Because we will encounter such times in life. 
So Judas went by his own way. And notice in verse 26, this might sound kind of flippant here. And they cast lots, and their lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now I just want to make a couple of comments in closing here on this. I just want to point out that this is not as flippant as it sounds. First and foremost, they're not flipping a coin on a moral issue. They're not saying, hey, are we going to vote, you know, whether this you know, homosexuality is, is sin or not? Hey, let's flip a coin and, and see what we come up with. They're, they're not flipping on a moral issue. Furthermore, both of these people have already met a certain spiritual moral criteria. They've already met it. So the problem is that they have two candidates of equal high quality. Both of these guys were good. So it was, it was the choice between two goods. And I would want to point out there's a biblical precedent, by the way, for the casting of lots. We actually see it numerous times in both the Old Testament and even in the New. Notice what belief it presupposes that at the end of the day, even what looks like chance to our eyes is under the sovereign hand of God. Now, I'm not saying, hey, let's, let's all go to the casino after this because we know God's sovereign over the cast of a dice or something like that. But I am saying you should absolutely, with all your heart, grab a hold of the doctrine being presented here. That everything in life that looks like chance, random toss of a dice, could have just as easily gone that way or another. I could have ended up with this person. Could have been married to this person. At 18 years old, and if I would have done that, and we would have had kids, and we would have gone this direction and that direction, goodness knows, I wouldn't probably wouldn't be here, right? Or what if this job? What if you got this job instead of that one? What, what if this person came in your life and not that one? What if the economy didn't do this, but it did that? I mean, we could be in all these places, and many times in life, it just looks like random chance. But what we are meant to understand as followers of God, that even the cast of a lot... Even the circumstances that govern politics, the, the economy, choices of our lives, the choices we make and the choices others make that affect us without our input are all under the sovereignty of God. I'm not saying God makes people do what they do. That's not what I mean by sovereignty. It doesn't mean God is the one who's sinning or he makes people sin. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what sovereignty means is no matter what happens in life, no matter what looks like random chance, God will get you where he wants you to go. He will bring you to the end of the story. Where you are ultimately meant to go no one and nothing can derail. He will get you there. And if you can trust him as the author and finisher of your story, that just as much as he wrote the first chapter of your human existence, and he began filling in chapter after chapter in your life, so you can trust him to put the final word at the end of the story of your life. That's what sovereignty means. And we need that. Because, boy, are there some seemingly random things that happen in life. And it can cause us to become bitter. It can cause us to become disillusioned. It can cause us even to harden our hearts and just say, well, God's not there. And if he is, he doesn't care. It is dangerous not to believe in the sovereignty of God. 
And so after doing all they can to be responsible, make the best decision, they say, Lord, at the end of the day, even chance is not chance to you. We entrust our decision-making to you, to whom you have chosen. And this is how this section ends. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven. That's more or less the last we hear of Matthias, by the way. Some people speculate, well, maybe they, they shouldn't have done it. Scripture doesn't say they shouldn't have done this. doesn't say it was wrong. The argument that Matthias doesn't really appear is not a great one, because most of the other apostles don't appear either, including the ones Jesus chose. It's mainly the prominent ones, Peter, James, John, and then later Paul. And so we see that ultimately God is sovereign over all of our lives. We are to interpret life primarily not just by how you feel, not just by what you see out there, but by what God has revealed in here, in his word. And if you will do that, if you will make this book, if you will make this word the guiding doctrine of your life, it will be an anchor for your soul. And when the storms come and others are dashed against the rocks, you will find... Not that the storms are comfortable, but that you are anchored in the storms. And that is my desire for all of us as we enter into this new season and whatever it has for us. Let us remain anchored in God, anchored in his word, anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. Lord, we just pray that you would take these words and we pray that you would apply them to our hearts. Sanctify our minds. Gain a hold of any of those thoughts that are going astray, they're going aside. Beliefs, ideas that have not been put in our hearts or minds by you. They've been put there by the world by our own imagination. We pray that you would clear up any confusing thoughts about you and your working in the world. Help us to remember once again what is most important. We are here to bear witness to Jesus Christ. None of us is promised tomorrow. Therefore, today is the day if we will hear your voice and not harden our hearts as Israel did in the rebellion. That you will hear from heaven. You will respond to your people in grace. And you will create in us a clean heart. Act now as we respond in this closing time of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.
gift of the body of Christ, or this spiritual house that you've grafted us into. Lord, we are thankful for your word that carries us, strengthens us, opens the eyes of our hearts to the mystery of the gospel. Lord, we need the rest of this morning and day to you. by celebrating the Lord's Supper again for those that are not familiar with the Lord's Supper or perhaps are familiar with the practice of it and don't understand it it's essentially a vow renewal ceremony baptism is a wedding day you get married but as you go through the ups and downs of life you renew your vows and that is what the Lord's Supper is for us. If you've been baptized, you've already been incorporated into the body of Christ. You are a part of the bride of Christ. We belong to Him. That's why we don't get baptized every week. It's a one-time thing. But because, like sheep, we wander and we go astray, we need to be renewed. Our shepherd never wanders. He is always with us. But we are the ones that stray. And so it's an opportunity in our hearts to come back. And Jesus instituted it. And as such, it's his chosen means of grace. We shouldn't despise the elements because we see them as but a wafer and, and juice. Rather, we look upon them and say that Jesus has promised to act in grace. That as we remember him and we obey him, that he will give his people grace to continue the race that is set before them. And so we are recognizing our need for that grace this morning. So go ahead and take the wafer in your hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you became flesh for us and for our salvation. We thank you that you have fulfilled all of the law on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that we who have broken the law and therefore should die the death on the cross, the death of a curse, you took upon yourself. It was your body that bore the wrath of God so that we who deserve the wrath of God might be pardoned. And so, Lord, we come before you with humble hearts, recognizing Christ as our substitute, our high priest, our Passover lamb. We thank you that in Christ we are made whole. We ask you would make us one. Renew your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us partake together. Let us now hold the cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you that while we were still sinners, you died. That when we were at our worst, spiritually lost and dead, you nevertheless saved us. You loved us as we were. Broken. Blind. 
spiritually ragged, and you made us sons and daughters. But because we are now sons and daughters, you refuse to leave us in our condition. You are wanting to break every chain of sin in our lives. So Lord, we confess that this past week we have fallen short of your glory. We have followed too much the desires of our own hearts. We have not done all the things you wanted us to do. We have done some of the things you did not want us to do. And apart from you, we are nothing. But Lord, because you are everything, we pray you wash and cleanse your people of all unrighteousness. We pray not only would you break the power of sin, which still abides in us, but we pray you would wash our minds, our hearts, remove the guilt and the shame, grant us truth and righteousness and power to live holy and faithful lives that bear witness to Jesus this week. So we look back on what you've done. We look forward to what you are going to do. Come soon for your church. Maranatha, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us partake. Again, in closing, we're going to have a number of opportunities if anyone wants to serve the body of Christ, if they want to be involved. There's going to be many opportunities. And again, I think those opportunities will be need to be born in prayer. So all I'm asking this morning, no sign-up sheets at the back table, no guilt trip. Uh, by the pastor, at least not yet. Um, so just got, all I want to encourage you to do is just be praying. Here's the needs and opportunities that we'll have before us. We're going to need more volunteers with the children's ministry as we uh, look forward and plan on being able to do weekly gatherings. So moving from uh, bi-weekly to weekly gatherings, that, that's a beautiful opportunity and it means we need more uh, assistance and involvement and a beautiful ministry to serve children. So children's ministry... We're going to need more youth ministry volunteers. Uh, we need a celebration coordinator. That's somebody that will work with me to event plan throughout the year to reinforce the things that we value as Christians and to celebrate them together. So a celebration coordinator, an outreach director who are overseeing ministries of mercy to the community where there's hurting, broken people. We want to be able to reach them tangibly with the love and hands of Jesus Christ. Evangelism. There are many that maybe outwardly don't look like they need anything, but according to Scripture, if they have not Christ, they are dead in their sins, they are blind, they need help, they need the gospel of life. Uh, social media coordinator, somebody that can take over our uh, social media and take it to the next level. Video editing, Sunday morning uh, media. I have uh, Michael Jr. currently recruited for that, but he'll be moving into uh, the youth group soon when we relaunch that at the end of June, so we'll need help with that. A greeting team. So again, these are many opportunities in many different ways in which we can gather together as the body of Christ and be active. We can do the word that we hear, which is so important. So all I'm asking at this time is just join with me in praying over these things. And if the Lord puts it on your heart, then I would simply encourage you to come forward and let us know that you're thinking about that. So let me close this word of prayer over these ministries and over you as you lead. Father, we thank you so much for this service this morning. We thank you for each and every precious man, woman, and child 
who are of infinite value and worth. We thank you for them. They are treasures, your treasured possession, and we love them. And so, Lord, because we love them and we want to grow as a family, Lord, we just lift up these needs. Children's ministry, youth ministry, celebration coordinator, outreach director, social media, video editing, greeting team, information table. Lord, we just pray even now. As Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. Lord, we are obeying you. We are praying for laborers to be sent. Raise up from among us and even send to us those that can assist in the work of the ministry. I pray for your hand of blessing, grace, and mercy to be upon each of these people. Let them know you love them today. Empower them for ministry. Use them to bring glory and honor to your name until we meet again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, everyone, thank you so much for joining us this morning. For those of you that would like to continue worship through tithes and offerings, Jim will be over to my right where you're able to give there. Also, if anyone has questions for me as a pastor or you would like there, I'll be over here to the right as well. And again, you're encouraged to stay, hang out, get to know one another. There's more coffee at the back table. And God bless you all. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.